Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has, and it never will. Stirring words coming from a man who never said anything other than what was on his mind. This is the story of Frederick Douglass, author, husband, father, abolitionist, activist, politician, and most importantly, free man. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Frederick Douglass. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. A lot of you ask how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Now, back to the life of Frederick Douglass. It's difficult to point to the one thing that Douglass is best known for. A slave who taught himself to read and write, Douglas escaped to freedom as a young man. He became a best-selling author with his autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, which captured the tragic, brutal conditions of American slavery. He became prolific in the abolitionist movement, was friends with President Abraham Lincoln, and was the first African-American to be nominated for the office of vice president. But Douglas's storied life began among the worst possible conditions. He wasn't born a free man. He wasn't even born Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey at some time around the year 1818 in Talbot County, Maryland. We should note here that because slave owners often didn't keep birth or death records of their slaves, Douglass's exact date of birth is unknown. In this episode, we'll be using approximations of Douglass's age as we go through his story. Douglas was born into slavery on the property of Colonel Edward Lloyd, one of the richest landowners in Maryland. Lloyd owned thousands of acres of land that were run by his clerks, who were essentially managers of the massive plantations. In his autobiography, he names his mother, Harriet Bailey, as a slave on the plantation. He claims that his father was actually a white man, Colonel Aaron Anthony, who served as a superintendent and clerk of the plantation where Frederick was born. Lack of birth records and a general cultural taboo on white people procreating with slaves means that no one can know for sure if Anthony was, in fact, Douglas's father. It was common practice at the time to separate slave infants from their mothers and place the baby in care of an older slave that couldn't work. In his autobiography, Douglas guessed at the reasoning behind this cruel practice. He wrote, quote, For what this separation is done, I do not know, unless it be to hinder the development of the child's affection toward its mother and to blunt and destroy the natural affection of the mother for the child. This is the inevitable result, end quote. As a baby, Frederick was sent away to a different farm and placed in the care of his grandmother. The attempt to destroy the affection between Harriet Bailey and her son did not take. 
At night, Harriet would sneak away from her plantation and trek 12 miles through the dark woods to see her son. Though Douglas had few memories of this time in his early life, he does remember her singing him to sleep as a child. Harriet died when Frederick was only seven years old. Around the same time, Frederick was sent back to work on the Y Plantation, which was run by his suspected father, Colonel Anthony. The Y Plantation was one of the largest, oldest plantations in the United States. It covered over 20,000 acres and enslaved over 200 people at any one time. Slaves were not given beds and were forced to share one threadbare blanket per family. If Colonel Anthony was Frederick's father, the older man didn't show it. Douglas wrote at length about Colonel Anthony's cruelty. He took pleasure in whipping his slaves, and he would feed children through troughs as if they were animals. Each morning, slaves woke up to the sound of a driver's horn. They were expected to work nonstop. If they took a break, Mr. Severe, the farm's overseer, abused them with his cowskin whip until they bled. Frederick was too young to do real work in the fields. Instead, he was given simpler jobs like herding cows and keeping the chickens out of the garden. Like the other slave children, Frederick was given no clothes of his own and generally performed his duties naked. Douglas claims that he was never whipped at that young age. However, he suffered during the cold nights, often crawling inside an old mill bag to keep warm. One early memory that made an impression on the young Frederick came during the monthly trek to the Great House. Once a month, slaves would pick up rations with which to feed themselves. They would have to travel from the various plantations on the property to the central farm. During one such sojourn, Frederick was touched by the singing of his fellow slaves, the sorrow, the longing, but more the strength he felt in those melodies stuck with him for the rest of his life. In his autobiography, Douglas connected those songs to his first glimmering conception of the dehumanization of slavery. He went on to say, quote, I can never get rid of that conception. Those songs still follow me to deepen my hatred of slavery and quicken my sympathies for my brethren in bonds, end quote. When he was eight, Frederick was again sent away, this time to the service of Colonel Anthony's son, Hugh Ald, in Baltimore. Baltimore was Frederick's first experience with an actual city. He was shocked by what he saw. Though richer families in Baltimore owned slaves, the city slaves seemed to have a tremendous amount of freedom. The city had a different social order than the more isolated plantations. It was considered improper to be a cruel slave owner. Urban slave owners didn't want people to think they were too poor to care for their slaves. And so city slaves were often well-fed and had nice clothes. Frederick arrived at the home of Hugh Ald and his wife, Sophia, and was surprised to be welcomed with open arms. In his autobiography, Douglas wrote that, aside from the moral crime of owning a slave, Sophia was a kind woman. Shortly after his arrival in Baltimore, Sophia began teaching Frederick to read. The lessons didn't last long. When Hugh Ald realized what his wife was doing, he put a stop to it. In Hugh Ald's own words, it was, quote, unlawful and unsafe to teach a slave to read, end quote. 
He wasn't completely correct about that. Many states at that time had laws in place that forbade owners from teaching their slaves to read or write. Maryland did not have any such laws. However, there was still a negative stigma around contributing to slave literacy. Hugh expressed a commonly held belief that education was key in helping slaves become free citizens, which is why he didn't want Frederick learning to read. A slave who could think for himself would be unruly and difficult to manage for his master. To hear him say it, if a slave learned to read, quote, it would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would become at once unmanageable and of no value to his master, end quote. Frederick overheard Hugh say that, and from that moment on, he wanted nothing more than to learn how to read and write. Frederick Douglass served the Alds for seven years. During that time, he secretly continued to teach himself to read and write. He was beaten by both Hugh and Sophia whenever he was caught. This happened often. Sophia had adopted Hugh's views on the dangers of an educated slave. She would become suspicious if Frederick was out of her sight for too long. He might be in another room with a book. The house wasn't always a safe place to continue his lessons, so Frederick learned other ways to continue his education. For example, he'd steal food from the house before he went on errands. Then he'd trade the food with poor white children he knew in exchange for words. In his dealing with these white children, Frederick was often overcome with frustrations. Poor or not, these children would grow up and be free. He would only grow up to continue being a slave. Douglas wrote, quote, I would sometimes say to them, I wished I could be as free as they would be when they got to be men. You will be free as soon as you are 21, but I am a slave for life. Have not I as good a right to be free as you have? End quote. When he was 12, Frederick obtained a copy of the Columbian Orator. The Columbian Orator was a collection of speeches that was commonly used to teach schoolchildren to read and write. It contained an essay, Dialogue Between a Master and a Slave, which explores a fictional conversation where a slave pleads his case for freedom with his master. In the dialogue, the master brings forward every common argument in favor of slavery, but the slave rebuts him and asserts that he deserves liberty as much as his master does. Eventually, the slave owner is so swayed by listening to the slave's perspective that he frees him. Just as his owners feared, the more Frederick read, the more he became discontent with his position in society. Frederick's thoughts became dark he considered killing himself. It was the only way he could see to escape his life of unjust servitude. It was around this time that Frederick became aware of the abolitionist movement. Abolitionists argued that slavery was morally evil and should be outlawed. The movement was rooted in the northern United States, which largely did not rely on slave labor. And by the 1830s, it was beginning to gain momentum in the more slavery-reliant South. Abolitionism made a strong impression in Maryland in 1827 with the establishment of the Maryland Colonization Society, which was an extension of the American Colonization Society. The ACS's form of abolition was to free all black slaves and send them to Africa, where they would, quote, have a better chance at equality, 
So they meant well, but their ideas for fixing slavery weren't always the smartest. The ACS faced backlash both from Southern slave owners and from other abolitionists and freed black slaves who didn't see the sense in their radical plans. But controversy aside, the formation of the MCS brought the abolitionist movement to Baltimore and to the attention of young Frederick Douglass. He read newspapers that covered the abolitionist movement. For the first time in his life, he realized that people in the North might help him if he were to escape from his masters. But he knew that in order to make a successful escape, he would need to continue learning his letters and he would need to grow bigger, stronger. In 1832, Frederick was sent to live with Hugh's brother, Thomas, in St. Michael's, Maryland. Thomas was brutal to his slaves. Under the guise of being a devoutly religious man, Thomas starved his slaves and deprived them of basic necessities. He claimed he was teaching them the benefits of depravity. Though Hugh and Sophia Ald had abused Frederick in an attempt to stop him from reading, they had always provided him with food, shelter, and clothes. Thomas had little interest in caring for his slaves in this manner. From Frederick's perspective, Thomas truly did not care if his slaves lived or died. Though he was only 14 years old, Frederick knew that if he hoped to survive Thomas's apathetic cruelty, he would have to fight back. We'll explore Frederick Douglass's bravery and rebellion after this quick break. And now, back to the story. 14-year-old Frederick Douglass knew he would have to stand up for himself or die from starvation or exposure. To that end, he started acting out in defiance of Thomas Auld, his abusive owner. Frederick would let Thomas's horses out, knowing that he would be tasked to retrieve them. Whenever he did this, he'd pass through other plantations and ask the slaves there to give him food. Thomas found out, and he beat Frederick. Frederick didn't stop. In 1833, Frederick was sent to work for Edward Covey, a farmer and renowned slave breaker. Mr. Covey was famed for his skill in breaking the will of defiant slaves. He went to work on making Frederick more pliable. Frederick was captive to Covey's torture for eight months. He was whipped weekly, starved and tortured. One day he passed out from exhaustion. Covey had no sympathy. When Frederick couldn't get up, Covey severely beat him with a stick. Frederick had had enough. Better to die trying to escape than to die under Covey's inhumane treatment. That same day, Frederick escaped Covey's farm undetected. He traveled to the only location he knew, Thomas's farm. Poor Frederick begged Thomas to take him back. Thomas's cruel apathy was preferable to Covey's brutal beatings. Of course, Thomas only berated Frederick for disobeying Covey and ordered Frederick to return at once. Frederick returned to Covey's plantation and awaited his punishment. It didn't come. Well, it didn't come for a few days at least. That was a common practice among slave owners. They would sometimes hold off on punishment for days or weeks in order to give the slave a false sense of security. Covey did eventually come for Frederick, ready to beat him within an inch of his life as punishment for his defiance. To Covey's surprise, Frederick was not going to take this beating silently. Covey's job had been to break Frederick. 
Instead, he had pushed Frederick to the point of desperation, a point where Frederick would actually strike back, not caring if doing so led to his death. The fight lasted for two hours. At first, Frederick only blocked Covey's blows, defending himself. But when the other workers on the farm arrived to assist Covey, Frederick knew his only chance of survival was violence. Frederick beat Covey in front of his wife and paid employees. When the other workers tried to intervene, Frederick fought them off. Covey kept ordering his men to grab Frederick, but none would obey. The men saw what Frederick was doing to Covey, and no one wanted to risk being beat down themselves. The fight finally ended when a broken, beaten Covey stumbled away. He didn't even have the strength to order his men to attack Frederick. For the rest of the time Frederick spent on Covey's farm, no one laid a hand on him. In January 1834, after a year as Covey's slave, Frederick was sent off to yet another owner, William Freeland. In his autobiography, Frederick states that Freeland was, quote, the best master he ever had. A prime example of Freeland's generosity is that he allowed Frederick to teach the other slaves to read. Every Sunday, Frederick hosted a school for his fellow captives. He taught them to read and write, using the New Testament as a curriculum. Unfortunately, though Freeland had no problem with this congregation, the neighboring white slave owners became more and more furious with Frederick's school. Frederick's congregation was permanently ended when a mob of people interrupted the Sunday gathering. Still, under Freeland's ownership, Frederick came to know a comfort and community that he had never before experienced in his life. Freeland even offered to extend Frederick's hire-out contract and keep Frederick on hand, but by this point in his life, Frederick knew what his destiny was. In his autobiography, Frederick wrote that he'd much rather live on free land than continue to work for Freeland. He wrote, quote, I was fast approaching manhood, and year after year had passed and I was still a slave. These thoughts roused me. I must do something, end quote. He enlisted four fellow slaves, and together they set about forging freedom documents and planning their escape route. The plan was over before it began. On the morning they were to escape, Frederick and his comrades approached the house to find themselves accosted by four white men. Someone had betrayed Frederick. Frederick and his friends were grabbed and tied up. The white men said that they had been in a fight and they needed to be inspected for injuries. Frederick had to act fast before the men discovered his forged freedom papers. While no one was looking, Frederick managed to throw the documents into the fire. Destroying the forged documents likely saved Frederick from getting into severe trouble. But Freeland knew what they were up to all the same. Frederick and his friends were all sent to jail. Frederick Douglass was kept in prison after his fellows had been released. As the suspected mastermind of the plan, his punishment was to be more severe. However, to his surprise, he was retrieved from jail by Thomas Auld after only one week. Thomas then sent Frederick back to the care of Hugh Auld in Baltimore. Frederick spent the next few years hired out to William Gardner, a shipbuilder. He spent his days working on the dock. However, Frederick was soon sent back to Thomas Auld. Here, Frederick actually attempted to persuade Thomas to pay him for his work, as he would a contracted employee, but Thomas wouldn't hear of it. Frederick was a slave and nothing more. 
Again, at a low point, Frederick's life was about to change again. In 1837, he met Anna Murray, the woman who would become his wife. Anna Murray was born in 1813 to slave parents. She was a slave until her parents were both emancipated and their status extended to Anna as well. She moved to Baltimore at 17 and became a part of the growing community of free African Americans there. It's uncertain how Frederick and Anna first met. Regardless of the circumstances, they quickly formed a relationship and began to consider a life together. Anna's status as a freed black woman inspired Frederick to once again seek his own freedom. They could not yet marry, since Frederick was a slave. So, in 1838, Anna conspired to help Frederick escape. Anna sewed a sailor's costume and secured Frederick a seaman's pass from another free black man in her community. She gave Frederick the money for a train ticket to get him to New York City while she stayed behind in Maryland. On September 3, 1838, Frederick was in Baltimore running an errand for Thomas Auld. This was it. He was already out of his master's sight. He began a journey that would take him to New York City. Frederick looked nothing like the description on the seaman's papers Anna had given him, and he worried that the ticket agent would see right through his charade. Instead of boarding with the other passengers, he waited until the train was already moving and hopped on when the ticket agent wasn't looking. He nestled in the blacks-only train car and waited for the fare collector. When the conductor came and asked for his free papers, Frederick lied and said he never took his papers with him out to sea. All he had was a seaman's document. He handed the conductor the document and prayed the conductor wouldn't notice that he didn't match the description. The conductor did a quick scan, collected Frederick's fare money, and moved on. Frederick made it to New York City, where he was taken in by an abolitionist named David Ruggles. He was free, in a sense. While he had successfully escaped, he was now a fugitive and could easily be caught and sent back to Maryland. Anyone harboring him would also be at risk of prosecution. While staying in Ruggles' boarding house, Frederick sent for Anna, who had a big decision to make. Would she marry a fugitive slave? She would. A few days after Anna arrived on September 15, 1838, Ruggles held a wedding ceremony for the two in his church. After the wedding, the two set off to New Bedford, Massachusetts, their final destination. Frederick and Anna were housed by a black couple, Mary and Nathan Johnson. They advised Frederick to change his name in order to better hide his fugitive status. Frederick refused to change his first name, but allowed Nathan to pick a new last name. And thus, Frederick Bailey became Frederick Douglass. After Anna and Frederick settled in New Bedford, Frederick got a job stowing a sloop with oil, but he wasn't content. He wanted meaning and fulfillment from this new life. After 20 years of enslavement, he was finally free. It was time to do something important with his life. Around January of 1839, Frederick was introduced to the abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. Reading The Liberator rekindled Frederick's interest in the abolition movement. Now that he himself was free, he could focus his efforts on advocating for the freedom of all slaves. Frederick's renewed interest in abolitionism coincided with the birth of his and Anna's first child, Rosetta. 
As Frederick's family grew, so too did his involvement in the anti-slavery movement. He attended anti-slavery meetings and became more involved in the black community by becoming a licensed preacher at the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. While attending one of these anti-slavery meetings, Frederick met William Lloyd Garrison, the founder of The Liberator. Garrison invited him to speak about his life as a formerly enslaved man at a Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society meeting. The Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society was a branch of the American Anti-Slavery Society, one of the main arms for the abolitionist movement. In the 1840s, the national organization had over 200,000 members. At first, Frederick spoke about his experience as a slave informally. But his eloquent and passionate voice moved the crowd so much, they hired him as a permanent speaker. In 1841, at age 23, he was invited to speak at the Society's annual convention. Two years later, in 1843, he was invited on a nationwide speaking tour called the Hundreds Conventions. The tour lasted six months and took Douglas all over the Northeast and Midwest. Frederick's reputation grew. Soon, he found himself speaking in front of packed houses. The newfound celebrity was both a blessing and a curse. While Frederick was able to share his remarkable life story with thousands of people, he also drew the attention of pro-slavery radicals. These white nationalists would often attempt to sabotage Frederick's speaking engagements. Frederick was physically assaulted during some of these meetings. In one particularly infamous attack in Pendleton, Indiana, a mob carrying clubs and eggs attacked the speakers before the lecture could even begin. Frederick's hand was broken, and it never fully healed. Still, violence didn't stop Frederick from moving forward. In 1845, Frederick wrote the first of his three autobiographies, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. The narrative focused on his experience as a slave, including the brutal and inhumane treatment he and his fellow slaves endured, and his eventual escape to freedom. The narrative quickly became one of the top-selling slave accounts of the era. Within four months of its first printing, the narrative sold over 5,000 copies. It was translated to Dutch and French and circulated in Europe. This surprise success created a problem for Frederick. He'd been fairly explicit in his detailed account of his life living under various masters. Given that Frederick was technically still a fugitive slave, the book could lead one of his former masters to seek him out and re-enslave him. He needed to get out of the country until the attention died down. So in August of 1845, Frederick left his wife and four children to go on a two-year speaking tour in Ireland and Britain. It would prove to be a life-changing journey in more ways than one. We'll get back to Frederick's story right after this. Now back to the story. In August 1845, Frederick Douglass left his home and family to take a two-year speaking tour in Ireland and Britain. It turned out he was just as popular in Europe as he was in America. He gave talks in crowded chapels and churches, drawing huge audiences. In May 1846, Frederick delivered the London reception speech. During the speech, he spoke about how well he was treated as a black man in England compared to the United States. 
In England, he said he was treated, quote, not as a color, but as a man. While Frederick's fame grew in Europe, his wife Anna was still supporting the family back in the States. During his two-year stint in Europe, Anna was responsible for running the household and caring for their then four children, Rosetta, Louis, Frederick Jr., and Charles. She saved every penny Frederick sent back to her and worked as a shoe mender to earn extra money. Anna Douglas helped carry the family and gave Frederick the opportunity to cultivate his career abroad. Frederick was so successful in Europe that in 1847, a group of supporters helped him raise the money he needed to officially buy his freedom from Thomas Ald. He could now return home to the States. Nine years after escaping to freedom, Frederick returned to his country as a legal free man. After returning home, he moved his family to Rochester, New York. On December 3, 1847, he started publishing his own weekly abolitionist newsletter, The North Star. Its motto was, quote, Right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren, end quote. The North Star became one of the most influential anti-slavery newsletters of the era. In addition to writing about abolitionism, Frederick also used the newsletter to fight for women's rights. Frederick was a member of the Western New York Anti-Slavery Society, where he met women's rights activist Elizabeth McClintock. She invited him to the first Women's Rights Convention in July of 1848 at Seneca Falls, New York. Shortly after the convention, Frederick published a statement in the North Star that said, quote, In respect to political rights, we hold woman to be justly entitled to all we claim for man. We go farther and express our conviction that all political rights, which it is expedient for man to exercise, is equally so for women. End quote. Frederick's social activism didn't stop with speeches and newspaper articles. In the late 1840s, he and Anna opened up their home as one of the northernmost stops on the Underground Railroad, the secret path that escaped slaves used to get past the Mason-Dixon line and into Canada. The Douglases also took in civil rights freedom fighters and other colleagues of Frederick's. While Frederick was off giving talks, Anna continued to support the family with work as a servant and a shoebinder. In her book, My Mother As I Remember, Rosetta Douglas wrote that Anna ceaselessly provided for the family so that Frederick could go out and fulfill his dreams. While Anna was well regarded among the community for her devoted motherhood and her underground railroad work, her reputation took a hit after two of Frederick's white European female colleagues moved in with them. One of the women, Julia Griffiths, a British abolitionist who'd helped Frederick start the North Star, lived with the family for three years. According to Rosetta Douglas, she would read aloud to Frederick when he was tired or depressed, and often accompanied him when he traveled out of town. The second woman, Otilia Assing, was a German abolitionist and feminist who stayed with the family over the summers for 22 years. Unsurprisingly, rumors began to surface that Frederick was having affairs with both Julia and Otilia. Anna bore the weight of these rumors silently. For her, speaking up, whether to affirm or deny the claims, meant exposing to the world the privacy of her home life. She wouldn't encourage the rumors by stirring the pot. In 1857, when Frederick was 39, 
Amanda Ald, the daughter of Frederick's old slave master, Thomas Ald, approached him after a lecture. Amanda had become an abolitionist. Frederick and Amanda became friends and maintained a written correspondence for several years. But although Frederick and Amanda moved past the scars of slavery with a peaceful reunion, the rest of the country wasn't quite so ready for reconciliation. On April 12, 1861, after a Confederate attack on Fort Sumter in South Carolina, the Civil War began. Frederick was one of the first to advocate for freed black men to participate in the war, claiming they should be a part of the fight for their freedom. He later served as a recruiter for the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment. His son, Frederick Douglass Jr., was also a recruiter, and his other son, Louis Douglass, went on to become a decorated member of the Army. In the early years of the war, Frederick was an adamant supporter of Abraham Lincoln. But in 1863, after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, Frederick met with Lincoln to express his grievances. Frederick was upset Lincoln didn't use the proclamation to allow ex-slaves the right to vote or use it to condemn the unequal pay and mistreatment of black soldiers. Lincoln's oversight in this matter is likely the reason that Douglas supported John C. Fremont of the Radical Democracy Party in the 1864 election. Lincoln was re-elected, and he apparently took Frederick's advice to heart. In August of 1864, Lincoln asked Douglas to assist in preparations for aiding the newly freed slaves coming to the North from the South. Their partnership would be short-lived, as Abraham Lincoln was assassinated that next year. Some historians believe Lincoln's widow, Mary Todd Lincoln, gave Frederick Lincoln's walking stick in honor of their friendship. After the Civil War, with slavery finally abolished, Frederick Douglass turned his attention to a new issue in the fight for equality, voting rights. In 1866, Frederick Douglass, along with feminists Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, founded the Equal Rights Association, an organization that fought for the universal suffrage of black people and women. That same year, Douglass was elected to represent Rochester, New York, at the National Loyalist Convention, where he and other radical Republicans discussed what would later become the 15th Amendment. This amendment prohibited state governments from denying a citizen the right to vote based on that citizen's race, color, or previous condition of servitude. However, the debate over the 15th Amendment led to arguments within the Equal Rights Association about whether rights for women or black people should be prioritized. Frederick claimed that Elizabeth Stanton was ignoring the importance of black male voters who were still afforded less legal privileges than white women. Stanton argued that women's suffrage deserved to be spoken about and both causes should remain united. Regrettably, in 1869, the two sides split and the Equal Rights Association dissolved. Also in 1869, newly elected President Ulysses S. Grant appointed Frederick Douglass to head a commission on the annexation of the Dominican Republic to the U.S. President Grant wanted to annex the Dominican Republic for two reasons, to ensure a European power didn't take it first, and to create a safe haven for black people suffering in the United States. Grant appointed Douglas to become an ambassador in the Dominican Republic, 
where he would investigate and create a report in favor of annexation. This appointment made Frederick Douglass the first black man to hold an ambassador position in the United States. As is often the case when society progresses, some fought back against the movement for equality. In the wake of the Civil War's end and the emancipation of American slaves, racist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan began to form. By the following year, the KKK had a chapter in every southern state. Even with legislation like the Enforcement Act of 1871, which gave the president more power to intervene against white supremacy organizations, racial violence was a constant danger. In 1872, the Douglas family home was burned down in a suspicious fire. It's unclear who may have started the fire, but it was widely considered to be arson, as Frederick had many enemies in anti-civil rights circles. Tragically, fire consumed all their old copies of the North Star, which by then were out of print. The fire didn't discourage Frederick. After losing their home, the family moved to Washington, D.C., where Frederick continued his civil rights work. In 1874, Douglas was brought on as president of the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company. The bank was created by the United States Congress in 1865 to offer aid to newly freed slaves. But by the time Frederick was appointed, nine years later, it was already failing. Douglas, desperate to keep the bank afloat, donated $10,000 of his own money to the Freedmen's Funds. Sadly, despite his donation, the bank failed later that same year. In 1877, Frederick closed the final chapter on his life as a slave. Amanda Ald and Frederick had kept in touch, and 60-year-old Frederick Douglass reached out to meet with a dying elderly Thomas Ald. Frederick claimed neither of them could hold back their tears. Thomas told him, quote, I always knew you were too smart to be a slave, and if I had been in your place, I should have done as you did, end quote. The two spoke candidly as equals. At the end of their time together, they parted as friends. It's a true testament to the strength of Frederick Douglass's character that he was able to forgive someone who once treated him so cruelly. In 1882, Anna died of a stroke. Frederick was naturally devastated and depressed by the loss of his wife. However, some felt that he wasn't too devastated because he remarried just two years later. His bride was women's rights activist and abolitionist Helen Pitts, the daughter of one of his white abolitionist friends, Gideon Pitts. Frederick's children did not approve of this marriage. They felt insulted that he'd remarried so quickly after the passing of their mother. Helen was 20 years younger than Frederick, and most importantly, she was white. Helen's family cut her off immediately, furious she'd married a black man. Frederick, the alleged child of a slave and her white master, didn't see the problem with interracial marriage. Of his marriage to Helen, Douglas said, quote, This proves I am impartial. My first wife was the color of my mother, and the second, the color of my father, end quote. By the late 1800s, Frederick was growing old, but he wasn't slowing down. In 1888, Frederick Douglass accomplished yet another groundbreaking feat. During the Republican National Convention, he received a vote for the party's nomination for the vice presidency. Although the Republican nomination ultimately went to someone else, 
Douglas was the first black man to appear on a presidential ballot during a major party's convention. In 1889, President William Henry Harrison appointed Frederick Douglass a minister resident and counselor general to Haiti, acting as a liaison between the United States and Haitian governments. Douglass accepted the job, and he and Helen lived in Haiti for two years, from 1889 to 1891. Upon returning home, then 73-year-old Frederick Douglass remained a speaker and writer and active both in the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. On February 20th, 1895, Douglass attended a meeting at the National Council of Women. Upon leaving, the 77-year-old suffered a heart attack and died. After his death, his wife Helen dedicated herself to preserving his legacy. She turned his Washington, D.C. home into the Frederick Douglass Memorial and Historical Association, which eventually became a national historic site. Frederick Douglass was a noble leader and eloquent speaker. But in remembering him, it's important to also remember the work of the women in his life. Without Anna, Frederick could have never escaped a life of slavery and he wouldn't have had the support he needed to travel the world giving his speeches. And without Helen, his legacy wouldn't have been preserved the way it has been. Frederick's lasting legacy is his belief that education is the link to freedom. Without access to an education, disenfranchised people have historically been denied access to certain jobs, opportunities, and achievements. Slavery may be a thing of the past, but even today, in order to truly live free, education is key. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode releases every other Wednesday. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Vanessa Benton and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 